0: Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Amos. Amos chapter 3. The book of Amos. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the chair in front of you. And Amos will be found on page 765. Amos chapter 3. Amos is one of the minor prophets. Minor not because their message is minor, minor just because their book is smaller than the other ones. And so. Amos chapter 3, Lord willing, we're going to be working through chapter 3 and a little bit into chapter 4 this morning. I'll go ahead and read Amos chapter 3, verse 1, down to 8, and then uh, we'll pray for our time together and we'll get to work. Amos chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when it has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from its den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city? Unless the Lord has done it. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing His secret to His servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Let's pray. Father in heaven, will you be with us here as we open your word and hear the word that you have spoken to us through Amos, through the centuries. And in these words, may you give us understanding. And may we find Jesus here on these pages. And may our hearts ever deepen and their affection for Him, and their willingness to serve Him and love Him and build their whole lives upon Him, so that He would receive the praise and the glory He so richly deserves. Amen. I want to stir you up to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the Holy Prophets, and by the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, following their own evil desires. They'll say, where is this coming, He promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Second Peter 3, 1 through 15. The prophet Amos and the apostle Peter were not contemporaries, they were separated by more than 800 years. Their world and their audiences were quite different. Amos spoke to prosperous, wealthy, free Israelites in the 8th century BC, and Peter spoke to Christians who were exiled and dispersed throughout the Roman Empire in the 1st century A.D. While their audiences and their timelines could not be more different, their messages were the same. The Lord's patience is our salvation. The Lord warned those who persist in their rebellion against Him that His judgment was coming against them. And though that judgment hasn't come yet, it will. God is not slow in keeping His promise. Rather, He is patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Knowing this, what sort of people ought you to be? Amos chapter 3 is like... Paul Revere's famous midnight ride of American folklore, crying through the city, the Assyrians are coming, the Assyrians are coming. And Amos' audience, the well-to-do decadent elites in Israel ignored that warning and continued in their sin. This text is relevant to all of us today. While we are in no danger, I don't think, of an Assyrian invasion, we are promised that God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. We are promised that each one's work will be shown for what it is. The Lord Jesus Himself said, there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed, and there is nothing concealed that will not be known Time would fail to tell of all the places in Holy Scripture where we are warned of the coming day of the Lord, when the risen Jesus Christ will judge the earth in righteousness and where the deeds and intents of, the, of every heart will be exposed, where the things that we have built our lives upon will be revealed as either worthless or enduring as either pointless or precious. Amos teaches us to take God's Word seriously. That when He exposes sin, we must see in that exposing of our sin His merciful love. And we mustn't harden our hearts against His merciful warnings. Rather, we must turn to Him in faith, knowing that He will forgive us, accept us, change us, and bring us into His glory and joy. Last Sunday, we saw that Amos is teaching us to, when the Lord exposes sin, to not think about others' sin. And not think, I'm glad that she's hearing this. I'm glad he's here to hear this. Or I wish so and so were here so that they could hear this. But rather, Amos teaches us to hear God's warning and to think of ourselves. Today, Amos teaches us not to neglect the warning of God, but to repent quickly and to receive forgiveness. So for the sake of our study, we'll divide Amos's sermon into three parts. One, the Lord's merciful warning in verses 1 to 8. Two, the Lord's notice to Israel that only a remnant will be saved, which we'll see in verses 9 to 12. And then last, the Lord's promise that those who oppress Israel will be exalted, exiled, which we'll see in verse 13 down to chapter 4, verse 3. So let's begin in verses 1 to 8, having a closer look at the Lord's merciful warning to His people. Verse 1 to 2. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Amos 3 starts with, Hear the word that the Lord has spoken. Now I'll remind you that Amos is a prophet from the south from the land of Judah. He's a farmer, he's a sheep herder, and he was sent by God to the rich in Israel who had recently experienced an unprecedented amount of economic prosperity under King Jeroboam II. Jeroboam was a wicked king who had built unauthorized temples for his countrymen, to replace the one that God had ordained in the south in Jerusalem. He built one of those cities, but at those temples in the city of Bethel, and furnished it with a golden calf. Jeroboam led God's people, Israel, into idolatry, and Amos came with a warning to repent. Here we see that Israel's special privilege as God's chosen people came with special responsibilities. Israel was God's people. God had chosen them for Himself out of all the peoples of the earth, verse 2. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. The Lord had chosen His people, given Him, they made, He made Him their, His special people. He had delivered them out of slavery in Egypt and called them to Himself. He had made them into a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, separated unto God for His special purpose. Israel was to be His special representatives to all of the nations on the earth, saying to them, do you want to know what Yahweh is like, who Yahweh is? Come to Israel and see. The Old Testament of your Bible is largely taken up with Years and years and years of God's dealings with His covenant people. He gave them His law. He sent to, him, sent to them His prophets. He protected them from danger. He preserved them through judgment. He revealed Himself to them in fire and clouds. When God's covenant people sinned, He would send them a warning to wake them up. But if they did not repent, judgment would come. Not to utterly destroy them, even though that's what they deserved, but to shake them up, and to call them to repent. And Sometimes they did, and sometimes they, sometimes they did not. But there was always a warning. Always. In verses 3 to 6... There are seven rhetorical questions meant to draw Israel out of their present stupor. The idea in these verses is that God's punishment against Israel's sins should come as no surprise to any one of them. Let's read them again. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he's taken nothing? Does a bird fall into a snare on the earth when there's no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown into the city and the people not afraid? Does disaster come upon a city unless the Lord has done it? The point God is making here is that Israel, none of this should come as any surprise to you. You are my people. You are called by my name. You have a special privilege. You have a special responsibility. Amos' message of God's impending judgment is very similar to Noah's message in his day. The Bible says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, calling upon the men and women of his day, brother, sister, repent of your wickedness. Join me and my family in the ark. And tragically, no one believed him. And so God sent a rain, a global flood, to swallow the earth. In verse 7 we read, The Lord does nothing without revealing His secrets to His servants, the prophets. What Amos is saying here is that God always sends someone ahead of His judgment as a warning. Like leaflets dropped From allied planes over German cities warning the people, bombing is coming, get out. The Lord dispatches His servants, the prophets, to go before Him, repent. Like the Lord Jesus warning His disciples to flee the city when judgment came. The Lord has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? You know, ten times in this passage alone, we're told that God speaks. Ten times. The lion has roared. What? Sane person could ignore such a warning. I mean, a barking dog is annoying, but at least you know where it is. It's the silent dog that you need to be worried about. God's warning to His people is His mercy to them. It's a call to repent of their sins, and Israel ignored that warning. You weirdo prophets, you've been saying this for years, and nothing has come of it. Pass the potatoes. Every Sunday morning, the Holy Spirit puts His gentle finger on a particular sin or sins in our lives. Parts of us which are worldly and ungodly and displeasing to him, could be the misuse of our time, the misuse of our finances, could be neglecting prayer or neglecting your Bible? Perhaps it's an addiction that you've continually given yourself over to? Perhaps it's the need to reconcile with a brother or sister. Maybe it's gossip. But whatever it is, the Holy Spirit's conviction in your life is a wonderful mercy and good grace to you. We may not not like it at the time, but it is mercy. To not warn someone you love of danger is unloving. You wouldn't let your teenage daughter or son get behind the wheel of a car that you knew the brakes might go out any time, would you? It would be unloving. So the Lord Jesus warns his church in Ephesus. Revelation chapter two, verse four to six. Listen, listen how the Lord does this. You have persevered. And have endured hardships for my name. And have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent. And do the things you did at first. If you do not repent. I will come to you. And remove your lampstand. From its place. Cornerstone, I hope you understand that when the Lord Jesus is speaking these words to the church in Ephesus, it is a tremendously loving thing to do for that church. He is leading them well. He is affirming them in the things that they're doing well, and He is mending the things that need correction. A good physician Shoots straight with her patience. She doesn't sugarcoat anything. A good physician in heaven shows the glory of His grace when He calls out sin. It is a kindness. And may we all receive it as such and seek the Lord and change. We must not be like our ancestors in the faith and persist in worldliness. For to do so would be to lose our witness to Christ and to his gospel. And what the Lord promised he would do in Ephesus would be true here in Piqua. He would come and he would remove the lampstand from its place. And you know the saddest part of that? If we would not repent of our worldliness and godlessness and Jesus did come in judgment to remove the lampstand from this place, we would likely continue to gather and just not even know the lampstand's gone. May the Lord have mercy and spare us that fate. Sadly, Israel rejected the Lord's warning through the prophet Amos. Since his people didn't draw near to him, Well, he called the surrounding nations to draw near to them. Which is what we see next. Let's keep reading. Verse 9 to 12. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They don't even know how to do Right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Strongholds were these fortresses for the rich where nobility lived in luxury. And God is proclaiming to the strongholds in Assyria and Egypt, inviting them the rich and wealthy in Assyria and Egypt, inviting them to the mountains around Samaria. Let's have a party. We'll invite the Gentile nations to the mountains around Samaria, where the capital city of Israel was. And he's saying, come and see the atrocities of my own people. In the law, God required at least two witnesses to adjudicate an offense. And for His witnesses against His people, the Lord calls Assyria and Egypt, not only enemies of Israel, but a people known for their own atrocities, many of them against Israel. And He gathers them to witness the unrest in Israel, the oppression in Israel. The Lord brings the wicked enemies of Israel, a people accustomed to living off the labor of others, to Samaria to see the exploitation within His own people. And the idea is that the wealthy in Assyria and the wealthy in Egypt would be amazed at the oppression in God's own people. Israel had persisted so long in her oppression of the poor, she had become so habituated to evil that God says, you don't even know how to do the right things. You've been doing the wrong things for so long, you don't even know how to do the right ones. Pride. Pride is so often at the root of our sin that the Lord will use profoundly humbling means to address it. He'll use an arrogant person to confront arrogance in us. He'll use a liar to expose the lies we've been telling. And it's so easy, and it's so fleshly, and it's so natural that when the Lord sends a sinner to confront sin in a sinner, the sinner who's being confronted says, one finger pointed at you is three or so pointed back at you. We can't do that we need to receive the Lord's rebuke from whatever source it comes. In Israel, they store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. This is the world they've built. I mean, they have—they may have built their strongholds with raw materials of brick and mortar, but their buildings are made of robbery and violence. Their oppression of the poor had built what they had. And God doesn't see their storehouses of money and food. He sees their storehouses of wickedness. And therefore, God's judgment must come. This is the promise of God. Psalm 103, verse 6, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. And so he says, an adversary will surround you and your defenses will fall and your strongholds will be plundered. Amos preached this sermon somewhere around mid-760s BC. 40 years later, in 722, Israel was surrounded by the Assyrians and her plunder was great. In verse 12, we read, As the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. Pictured here is the image of someone standing alone in the rubble of what used to be Samaria holding the torn remains of their couch. What once represented luxury and ease is, is... Now, just a ruined fragment. Only a remnant is spared. And and Amos uses gruesome language here to picture the leftover fragments of a sheep after a lion has had its way with her. This is the level of destruction coming upon Israel for her idolatry if she doesn't repent. And there's nothing to save them. There's nowhere to turn. Devastation is coming. It's what the Lord has promised. And those who are the oppressors will be sent off into exile, which is the third and final point. Verses 13 and following. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, says the Lord God, the Lord of hosts. That on the day that I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel. And the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house. And the houses of ivory shall perish, and all the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. On the day that the Lord comes to punish Israel, he will turn particularly to the city of Bethel. Remember, Bethel was the city that King Jeroboam II built. He built altars to Yahweh and altars to Baal and whatever other god suited him at the moment. It was the home of one of the golden calves that he had built for his people to worship. And when God promises that he will cut off the horns from the altar and cause them to fall to the ground, he means that these false gods will offer no protection. In the Bible, God ordained that His altar would be built as a square with four corners, and on each corner would be these horns, which would protrude outward. And these horns became a safe place for refugees. There's a story in 1 Kings chapter 1 where a man fled for his life and grabbed hold of the horns of the altar. It was like home base in the game of tag. You're safe there in the presence of God. And God promises Israel that He's going to cut off the horns of the altar at Bethel. God is not here. There is no protection here. These are false gods being worshipped in this place. and They offer no protection. Their horns fall to the ground. The the word Bethel means house of El, house of God. These houses of worship will be destroyed. And God says, so will the houses of the worshipers. The Lord moves from house of their gods to the house of the worshipers of those gods. He says, I will strike the winter house. And then I will strike the summer house. And then I will strike the houses of ivory. All the great houses will be destroyed. This repetition of judgment coming on houses is meant to show there's no safe place to go. There is nowhere to turn. There is no escape. Israel will find no refuge from what's coming. Their summer house will be lost. Their winter house will be lost. Their houses of ivory. Obviously, picturing great wealth will be lost. All the great houses will fall. Archaeologists have uncovered furniture from this time period with carved ivory inlays. These people spent lavish funds on expensive couches to sit on, and they lost it all in a matter of days. From here, Amos turns to a particular group of people who he mockingly calls the cows of Bashan. So pick up reading in verse 1 of chapter 4. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fishhooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into harmon, declares the Lord. Calling someone a cow of Bashan is doesn't quite have the punch that maybe it did in Amos' day. The word for cows in the Hebrew here is in the feminine form, and since Amos later refers to wives barking orders to their husbands, most commentators understand this to be an indictment against wealthy women in Samaria. Calling them the cows of Bashan would have been a fitting symbol for these women. The area of Bashan was known for its fertile fields and its well-fed cattle. These pampered, self-indulgent, bossy women would maintain this lifestyle of theirs by exploiting the poor and crushing the needy, speaking demandingly to those around them. They demand that their husbands wait on them hand and foot in order to satisfy their own pleasures. And then in verse 2, the Lord, who answers to no one's demands, swears by His own holiness that He will take care of these women who oppress the poor, who crush the needy. God is saying, I will cease to be God before I cease to take care of you. It is a promise. And take care of them, He does. He says, the days are coming when you will be led away with hooks. For a very long time, those who handled cattle would put rings in their noses. Have you ever seen pictures of cattle with rings in their noses? The septum in the nose is very sensitive. So they would use that in order to control the animal. These pampered women who tread on the poor will be led out of the city like cattle with rings through their noses. No one really knows what the word that is translated as fish hooks means. It could be a prod of some kind, it could be a fish harpoon or something. But the point is that these women, every one of them, will be driven out of the city in a shameful way like driven cattle. Verse 3, we see they will be led out through breaches. The city of Samaria will be so completely overrun that her walls will be so breached, openings will be wide enough to lead cattle through, lead a a parade of women through. And God casts these wicked women out of the city and into Harmon, a location that to this day is unknown the idea here just being far away. And this is exactly what happened in 722 BC with the Assyrian invasion. They leveled the city of Samaria and they carried her people into exile. But the Lord had warned her 40 years prior through the prophet Amos. And they ignored that warning And destruction came upon them swiftly, like a thief in the night. So what's the lesson here for us? Don't buy furniture with ivory inlays? Don't have two houses? Not exactly. The lesson here is that it is the Lord's kindness to expose our sin. When He does, we mustn't look at others and think they're worse. Deal with them first. Why is He doing this to me? Has He not seen her? We must heed the Lord's merciful warning that those who persist in unrepentant sin, God's judgment is coming. And Though it hasn't come yet, it will. God is not slow in keeping His promise. His patience is our salvation. I could tell you from this passage, this is your sin, Cornerstone. Deal with it. Try harder. Pedal faster. But that's not going to help anyone. When the Lord exposes the sin in our life, it isn't isn't so that we do better next time so that we run to Him. The judgment that Israel deserved, that all of us deserve, fell on Christ. And while it was us who deserved it, it was Christ who was led my cattle to the slaughter. His life was the sacrifice that forgave all the idolatrous ones. And so we mustn't search for comfort anywhere but the risen Christ Jesus, the Lord. Summer houses, winter houses, a steady job, healthy relationships, business success, good friends, none of these things are a refuge. Only Christ is the safe place to turn. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, I would invite you to be honest. You have turned your back on God. You have rebelled against His commandments. And Jesus Christ died on the cross to suffer the penalty of your sin to show to you that God has not turned His back on you. God raised Him from the dead three days later as proof that He is God. And that He is using this message here today to call you to repent of your sins. Jesus doesn't want anything from you, dear sinner. He doesn't want your duty. He doesn't want what you can do for him. He wants you. He didn't die for what you could do for him. He died for you. To enable you to become the person he's made you to be. Repent of your sins and turn to Him and receive His forgiveness and free grace. And to the believer, this passage is about faith. Will you believe what God has said is true? Will you accept the privilege of His purpose in your life? Will you believe that the same power that raised the Lord Jesus from the dead lives in you to enable you to overcome temptation? Will you believe that God's power has broken the power of sin over your life? And will you receive with open arms the guarantee of a future More magnificent than you've ever imagined. Would you believe that Jesus spoke the truth when he said, You are clean? Are you ready to get out of the cul-de-sac of self-gratification? Self-gratification and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Are you ready to set your sights on something bigger, something more fulfilling than making much of yourself? Cornerstone God chose you in Christ. You Before the foundation of the world, God chose you in Christ. No more head hung low, defeated, and dejected. Sit up straight. You've been united to the risen Christ. You are an ambassador for King Jesus, called to proclaim His excellencies. Walk in the joy and favor of God's own Son with steel in your spine, ready to face the world, the flesh, the devil, in the power of Almighty God. You may have a shameful past, but by God's grace, you have a glorious future. Keep showing up on Sunday morning. Keep seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Keep being changed into His likeness and image. Keep showing up by reading the Bible, having your affections moved and renewed. Keep showing up in prayer, watching the Lord's power at work watching as your addiction to sin and to self is swallowed up in the joy of knowing Christ. So knowing what you know, hearing the warnings of Almighty God, as merciful as they are, what sort of people ought you to be? Well, Peter answers, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That's the future God has for you. And as for me, the least of your pastors, I'm rooting for you till my dying breath. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are great. Great doesn't even begin to describe how great you are. We love you. We adore you. It is an amazing thing that you have set your love upon us. Chose us in Christ from before the foundation of the world. It is truly mind-blowing, and we thank you for it. We thank you for your merciful patience with us. As we return here every Lord's Day morning and you expose our sin, your patience with us, with us when we turn a deaf ear, and you just keep speaking, gently wooing and drawing us to yourself. Ten times in this passage, a thousand times in my life. You're so exceedingly kind to us. So will you forgive us for neglecting to live as you've called us? Will you forgive us for not living in accordance with the calling you've placed upon our lives? Forgive us for not being more enamored with you than we are with football and politics. May we never become so accustomed to sin that our hearts grow so dull We don't even know what is right. Lord, thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for the warnings. And so we ask you this morning that to send your Holy Spirit to work in us a humble acknowledgement of our sin and our need for change. Give us, in the power of the resurrected Lord, power to change. New joys, new affections, new desires to please you, more than we want to please ourselves or any other person. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you were true in your confession of your sin, then I'm happy to announce to you that this is true from God's word about you. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all.